If you're joining us uh, this morning, we're uh, week two in a series looking at the Stations of the Cross, a 14-step journey that uh, the Catholics formed many centuries ago that commemorates Jesus' final day on earth, which culminates in his death and burial. And ultimately, uh, we find the great, um, the great climax of this journey on uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Um, and often what people do is that they use these stations as a bit of a mini pilgrimage that they go on so that, um, so that you know, the danger that we've got growing up mostly in sort of charismatic evangelical worlds, because I think most of you guys have done that, is that we don't take little things like pilgrimages into Easter very often, and that's why I like leaning into these sort of more liturgical uh, things and the church calendar and all that sort of stuff, because Easter is the biggest deal for us as followers of Jesus. Like, our faith is centred around the events of Easter, particularly the resurrection. If He rose again, then Jesus was indeed God in the flesh, like if that happened, that's a huge deal. And if that happened working backwards, then hallelujah, my sin has been taken care of on that cross. Not because of anything I've done, but because of his love and his mercy for me. And so uh, working backwards, therefore, all the events leading up to that particular moment are a big deal for us. And so we want to not just slide into Easter, just like you know everyone else, and just kind of, we want to take this measured, deeper journey, which is why we're doing this, uh, this whole thing of the Stations of the Cross, which is why we're doing the 21 days of prayer and fasting and all the rest of it. So uh, today we're going to be looking at two stations. We're going to be looking at Jesus uh, as he stands before the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish, uh, the Jewish religious court system, and uh, Jesus as he's denied by Peter. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to open them to Matthew 26, we'll be on the screen. Sorry that this one's been a bit glitchy, but um, yeah, if you've got any issues with that, then feel free to sit over here. Uh, but uh, Matthew 26, verse 57, so it says this. Those who had arrested Jesus, so last week we looked at um, the Garden of Gethsemane and the betrayal of um, Judas, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so it leads up to this moment. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and calling and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So this is, continues Jesus' journey to the cross. And as I said last week, the, this, this story begins with um, the Passover. So we kind of commemorated that as we do every Sunday. We take communion together. And then it goes from that place to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus pours out his heart to God. And last week we looked at this thing that God, that Jesus pours out his feelings, his desires, and then yields and trusts in uh, his heavenly Father's will. He takes his process. Uh, and as he leaves the garden, you'll notice that he's just filled with peace. 
There's this peace. He's very gracious to Judas. Uh, and even in this moment with all this crazy stuff going on, there's this peace that rests on Jesus. He's just not reacting anymore to all of the, you know, all the, the, the ways they're trying to provoke him. Um, and so uh, he goes into this, like this is a really different world than the world that we're used to when it comes to church and culture and all the rest of it. Because uh, the, the local church that we have today is nothing like the power that the Jewish uh, temple and church had at this particular time, as you can tell, right? Uh, so this is like, you've got to imagine, so the Israelite nation, as Jim was pointing out, was formed with the temple as the kind of cultural center of the Israelite nation where God's glory dwelt. It was like this, the absolute center. Of, and it was also the place where healthcare was dealt with. Uh, you'll read this throughout the Old Testament, where it was the place where uh, legal disputes were also settled. And so then when the Roman occupying force came in, the Romans were very interesting in that they were relatively chilled about the fact that you've got these different weird religious groups, including the Jewish people. And they're like, yeah, sure, you can practice your religious stuff, whatever, man. We're kind of chill with that. As long as it doesn't interfere with Caesar's rule, sweet as do what you want. And so then uh, you've got this kind of cultural setup where you've got like a nation within a nation, where you've got this whole cultural setup around legal systems and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and so then they take uh, Jesus to see the high priest. And, uh, and like these guys have genuine power in the community. They're equivalent, honestly, they're probably the equivalent to like a political party, uh, the political party in power. So it would be like, you know, I mean, I saw um, our local MP Stuart Nash's car drive around today and I, uh, the other day, and I was like, I was driving around and I was like, saw him, and I was like, man, I just want, I need to talk to Stuart Nash about a few little things that I would love to get sorted out, <laughs> namely some immigration concerns that I have in terms of people in our church community and one or two other social things that I think would be good to sort out. And like, and I'm genuinely like, I'm, I'm like, this got this like, oh, if I could just get 10 minutes, I would plead my case. And sure, nine times out of 10, it's not going to help, but there's a small chance that maybe he could talk to the right person and something could change, Right. That's the sort of power, the temple and the high priest, like that's the sort of power that, that they would have. Not only that, but when you come to some of the legal issues, they had real power, which I must admit I've fantasised about. Like, man, imagine like if it's like, okay, Luke Hoss has been like, you know, we, we saw him. And now, now this is all hypothetical, right? We saw him swearing the other day at children, you know, which, you know, he's, he's like a brilliant evangelist that travels the nation. And if you're watching this online, that's not Luke. You can trust him. Uh, and so it'd be like, oh, Luke, you're in trouble now, mate. We're really, now I'm like, you're going to get a bit of a hiding, actually, because you've broken some rules. So I'll get some big units to help me out because I'll be a bit. So I'll get Robert Venter, who's like 10 foot tall, and I know Bruce Radimer and probably Barry or Craig or to help us out. And it's like, all right, sorry, Luke, bro, you, you know, we saw you having some naughty words. And so, bang, yeah, you're not allowed to do that. This is just church discipline, sorry, bro. And this will teach you, bang, another lesson that you're not allowed to do. Like, that would be awesome. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. It would be terrible. What a horrible thing. Can you see the power that the, this, the priest has? Like when they convict Jesus on this kind of crazy charge, bring all these witnesses and there's no, and everyone knows in the room, clearly you can see by the text, oh, this is all just made, you know, this is all just nothing of substance here. And then two people say, they misinterpret what Jesus said earlier in the Gospels around the temples. And, uh, and, and then the high priest gets so dramatic, tears his robe, this is blasphemy. And then they start beating Jesus. 
No wonder Jesus was so disappointed with the state of the temple. No wonder Jesus went in there and he's like, this isn't, it's not meant to feel like this. This is meant to be a place of prayer. What's prayer? Prayer is a place of intimacy with our heavenly Father. That's what this place is meant to be like. So he starts overturning all the economic stuff and all the complicated stuff that's to do with how you can engage with God and all the corruption that had entered into that temple. And like, uh, and he's just, and so like the high priest is threatened by Jesus because Jesus is getting uh, back to the heart of what this whole temple culture is meant to be all about. And, and uh, the high priest would have, like it become this place of ambition, like a political party. Am- ambition, lies, distortion of truth, injustice taking place, real power going on. Like it had just totally corrupted what this thing was all meant to be about. And Jesus threatens this. Jesus threatens this. Now, I get a bit, I love that we do this every year in terms of journeys up to Easter and into Christmas and all that. For this reason alone, I want my, my life anchored in Jesus. Like I just, I'm like, I can give inspirational talks and do that sort of stuff, but I want us to be anchored in the text. That's why we're working through the text as we head into Easter. And with all the crazy that swells on in the world today, I, want, I just more than ever anchor my life in Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me the Gospels. Give me just, I want to. Uh, but there are times when I anchor myself in the Gospels and I read through this, I get a bit annoyed at Jesus. I'm like, Jesus, couldn't in that moment you have just spelled out what you were about so these moron high priests and the surrounding idiots could get it. Why, why didn't you just say, yes, I am the Messiah, but not in the sense you expect. I've been anointed by God to bring the kingdom, but not in a military political way. The kingdom is coming through transformed hearts, communities, and cultures. Most of all, the kingdom is coming through my death as I bear the sin of Israel and indeed the whole world. Wouldn't that be nice? Like, we'd just be like, oh, okay. The problem is a few things, issues in there. Number one, Jesus knew he had to die. He knew he had to die. And he had actually been spent the whole previous three years saying this message, if you had ears to hear. He had to be careful about how he said it with the Roman occupying force. But he tapped into all of that imagery, all of that beautiful story of the Old Testament and began to wrap it all together by, by, summer, by living this, the statement I just made. This was the way it was meant to be. And so uh, in the end, Jesus was, He's like, hey, I think Jesus has got to the point where he's like, it's not going to change. I have to go through this. So he says those kind of things like, it is just as you say, and one day you'll see me, and which is true, coming on the clouds in glory. Uh, and, uh, and then he gets beaten <laughs> by the church. I mean, it's, it's a religious thing and it's a political thing that winds up colluding together to, to kill God in the flesh. Can, we, can you get your head? This is why Easter's huge. It's like they're beating up God and he's letting them. All of that, guys, we've got to avoid religious stuff as much as we can. That religious spirit that gets controlling and is a bit, and and like really honestly, as a pastor, um, part of me is grateful the church is increasingly on the margins of our society because that's where it gets pure and it gets, it finds its power. Not every single time. The church colludes with the political powers of the day. It gets corrupted. 
which is what's happened here. This is, if I'm really honest, you see in the state some of the dangers of, of what can happen there as well in recent times. It happened in Germany. It happens over and over. History is just littered with example. We have got to remember that we are the counterculture. We are the people of the kingdom of God. It's not coming around by military and political force. It's coming around as ordinary people like you and me grasp a vision of what Jesus is all about and do their best to live it out in a community of faith. That's what we're all about. Sign me up. Radical counterculture. Yes, following the way of Jesus. All right, let's move on to the next uh, next station. And so then G- uh, Peter disowns Jesus. So Peter, you would have uh, read in the earlier part of that text, he, he kind of, Peter's brave. I love Peter, eh? He's always like, I'm going to, he just, he's courageous and a bit, you know, doesn't think it through, just kind of does it. So he follows the guards and all this Roman stuff going on, and which is a dangerous thing to do. You've got to give him credit uh, to just find out what's going to happen to Jesus. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting in, out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, though, standing there, went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses. (laughs) And he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. How powerful. I mean, you don't have to embellish that moment. You don't have to try and preach it up. That is a powerful moment of a, of a failure of this person who promised Jesus, I won't deny you, I won't deny you, whatever. I'm, and then cock-a-doodle-doo. And it's like I totally screwed up. I totally screwed up. Oh, man. This is it's an interesting passage because if we're really honest and we sit in it, and again, this is why the stations are so good, how many times have we been Peter, right, denying Jesus in our lives, if we're honest? It may not be to the same level that we're dealing with here, but where we try and minimize our faith or, or, um, or we kind of try and be a stealth Christian at our workplace or whatever it may be. Um, you know, I've been a pastor since I left high school. I went to Bible college for three years and then uh, been in full-time ministry. And one of the most embarrassing parts of my life is the fact that one of the most normal questions you ask someone you don't know that well is what they do for a job, right? What do you do for a job on the plane, in the cafe, at the wedding, or whatever it may be? And it's always like... This isn't going to go well. This isn't going to open up the conversation you're hoping it's going to open up. And like, man, there have been so many times I've had the little like, what if I just said social worker? You know, because I'm kind of a social worker. Just for Jesus, you know, I could just say I'm a social worker. I hang out and look after people and that would be really good. Or I don't know, work for the Ministry of Spiritual Development, the MSD, or, uh, you know, or something that's not, because it's just awkward. And I'm so jealous of every one of you that don't have to deal with this. It's just not fair. At least you can say what you do without this giant amount of awkward entering the moment. And so, like, what people normally do when they hear I'm a pastor is they normally, <laughs> A, I don't look like the typical pastor, and so there's always a, 
there's always that moment of like, okay, that's not what I thought you guys looked like, but whatever, man, it's a weird world we live in. And, and then it's like, then what you've got to try and do, because this is why we ask the question, is find some sort of common ground where we can have a chat, which normally I was like, oh yeah, my, my, uh, my uh, great uncle was a Catholic. Oh, cool, man. Like, it's great. And it's like, so what do you do? And let's just quickly talk about your thing. And it's just, and so many times I've wanted to deny Jesus. Uh, I don't know what it's been like in your life, but you know, uh, there is that temptation, particularly because we haven't done a great job at, in the last 20, 30 years at fostering a great picture of what the church and following Jesus is all about. And, um, and, that's, and the media has enjoyed every little mistake that we've made and amplified it dramatically and ignored all the rest of it. Um, and so I appreciate that when you go to work, it can be a bit of a, uh, bit of a thing of like, uh, um, but can I just say, let's just be unashamed. I like Luke Collis's, the, the title of his organization. It's just unashamed. We're unashamed. We want to be, let's be an unashamed church, an unashamed people. I was visiting um, uh, one of our guys um, who's in prison at the moment. Actually, going to be uh, we're going to be posting some of the details about that this week because he's keen to um, be a bit more public about it. But for the sake of the podcast, um, and I'm like so proud of this guy, man. He's smashing it in there, eh? Like just he's like as I said last time I talked about him. It's like he he was like, bro, teach me how to like do the quiet time thing again because you know although he's super serious about wanting to stay close to Jesus because he really needs to be. And so like I'm like, oh, if only the whole of the rest of my church was this passionate about making sure their devotional life is really ticking along, I'd be a very happy pastor. But he's like, tell you something. We keep talking about it. So on Thursday, I caught up with him and he's like, Bro, so morning's going great, lunchtime, got a little thing going. How do I finish the day really well in terms of a diva? And I'm like, I can help you with that. So we sit and we have this great chat. And, he, and I'm like, So how's it going? And he's moved units. And I'm like, How's it going in the new unit? And, um, and you know, I'm like, Trying to just find out how he's going with the, his faith in, the, in this context. And he's like, Mate, everyone knows I'm a Christian. And I'm like, you legend! You're not a Peter. You're absolute, there's no cock-a-doodle-doo for you. You're an absolute legend. And in spite of all of this pressure to, you know, in a very intense environment, he's like, I'm following Jesus. He's got his Bible out, he's doing his devos. A lot of it, the guys come on the past and see it happening. I'm like, you legend, we need more of that sort of fire in the church where people can start uh, redeeming what it means to be a follower of Jesus by saying, yes. Yes, I follow him, and and he's more he's 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 more revolutionary than you could ever imagine. He's more counterculture than you can ever imagine. He leads to life, and yeah, the media and all the church has often been really terrible at representing him well. But I can tell you, he's brought life to me, and man, it's been just you know blah 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 blah. So let's be a you know in this moment, it's like it's uh, it's challenging because if we're really honest, we've we've been in that space lots of times. And you know, one of the simplest ways to not deny Jesus is that when someone asked you what you did over the weekend, you mention that you came here. Now stick it right in the middle of everything else so you don't finish with it so it's awkward. Stick it in the middle and then do some stuff this afternoon and just kind of go chronological and all the rest of it. Hey, what's some rugby doing? And then we had a grand name and the barbecue. It was really good. Yeah, good weekend. What about you? Stick it in the middle. But at least nail your colours to the mask where you're like, I'm, I, that's part of my life. I go to church. I'm a follower of Jesus. You can just begin to put in these things that make it clear. It's interesting, uh, Peter's reaction to this moment. It is so beautiful. It's in sharp contrast to what, how Judas reacted. Judas um, was filled with remorse and pain, but Judas did not run to Jesus. He despaired in, in, in his mistakes, and in the end, he took his life. 
Uh, Judas uh, did that, but Peter, we see, it's just, you know, this moment is in all four Gospels. Like, this is like, they they were like, this needs to be in the story. Particularly because Peter, who becomes the leader of the early church, he, he says, he went outside and he wept bitterly. I read in one of my Lent devotions this week um, this great quote by Brian Zand. He said this, Most of us are predisposed to divide the world into good and bad people, the righteous and the unrighteous. But Jesus really does this. For Jesus, the most dominant categories are the proud and the humble. We're all sinners. Are we proud sinners or humble sinners? That is good. That is good. That's real good. We're all sinners. Are we proud sinners or are we humble sinners? Because Peter, the example of Peter is that he's the humble sinner. He weeps bitterly. He weeps bitterly. And uh, one of the most beautiful realities of God's heart is that he uses people who make mistakes. That's why this is in the Gospels, and all four of them. Now, I'm sure, you know, Peter had a say. It's like, do you want to stick it in there? And it's like, yeah, we've got to stick that in there. One of my worst moments ever, let's put it in the Gospels so that people know God powerfully uses people that make mistakes. That's what he does. He uses people that make mistakes. The one condition, only condition, that Jesus has, that God has on anyone, is the humility to come to him. That's it. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you get saved. That's how you follow Him, is that you consistently have the humility to say yes to Jesus, especially when you've made a mistake, especially when the enemy says this disqualifies you, especially when you think no good can come out of my life. I've made a complete meal of it. Especially in those moments, you need to run to Jesus and hear His words of truth that nothing can disqualify you by being used powerfully by Him. The key is just humility. That's why we take communion every week. We come to the table. We come to the table. We have the humility to weep bitterly when we make mistakes. But we run to Jesus. We run to Jesus. And honestly, I can say this with passion because that's me. Like I've been a Muppet most of my life. I've made all sorts of stupid mistakes. I shouldn't be up here. I should have been disqualified time and time and time again because of some of the things I've done in my past. And yet he keeps redeeming me. He keeps healing me. He keeps pouring out his grace and saying, you're good enough, not because of how amazing you are, because of how amazing I am. I qualify you, Sam, to do what you want to do. You know, the, the, the very first time I spoke, this gives you a great example of, how, of what the Lord had to deal with. The very first time I had to speak in front of a crowd, I was like, I'm going to be awesome. <laughs> I was 15 years old, and we did a short-term mission trip to Tonga. And I was like, and that, I was like they're like, you're going, to, you're going to preach in front of a whole high school. And I was like, that's a lot of people. That's awesome. And at the same time around I got that invitation to my first ever talk in front of people, I'd been given this talk by this African-American preacher. Now, I'd grown up in the Anglican church, and so hearing that sort of preaching blew my mind. That was pre-internet. I had no idea people could preach like that. I listened to that tape till it got worn out. I was like, oh, boy, baby, I'm going to preach that one day. It's going to be amazing. Oh, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to be amazing. And so I got this thing to preach, and I'm like, this is going to be great. I'm going to be awesome. And so I listened to the tape, and I was like, I'm just going to be like that. I'm going to be so awesome. 
Unfortunately, the entirety of my preparation involved me stroking my ego, saying, I'm going to be awesome. I didn't write a single word. And I just was like, uh, it'll come. Like, all the good preachers seem to shoot from the hip a bit anyway. So, you know, like, I'll get up there and it's going to be awesome. Anyway, oh, it's still a bit hard for me. You know, I walk out, I walk in front of the stage in front of, like, I don't know, thousands of kids, 100 or whatever. Walk out and then... And I had nothing. I lent the notes. And I was just like, and then I just froze. Like, and it was like a bad movie. Like I walk out there, no, and it was like. <laughs> and honestly, I, I can't make it as awkward as it was in that moment. I mean, I'd have to stand here for five minutes because it's about how long I stood there. Like, and I do like it's a little hazy because there's a lot of repressed stuff going on here. But I do remember saying. Um, Jesus is great. <laughs> Eventually, one of the guys on our missions team had to walk across the room onto the stage, put his arms around me, walk, turn around and walk me, sit me down, and then he could walk out. And because he was a vicar, he's like, what Sam was trying to say was, and gave a five-minute little presentation. That, friends, was my introduction to speaking in churches. And it's like... Oh, God loves taking mistakes and muppets and people with ego and ambition and brokenness. And it's not just all the, the naughty, it's especially the ego and the ambition and the desire for power and significance and all that stuff where we want to become a mini God. All of it. He takes broken people with all of our mess and all of our vulnerability and all of our failings. And if we continue to stay locked on Jesus, then he does extraordinary things with ordinary lives. And, and the more that that happens, the more humble you get and the more glory you can give to him. Because when you see a great, uh, a great sculpture, you do not praise the chisel. You praise the artist. We're all just chisels. We're all just chisels, hallelujah. And so Peter wept. And in John 21, we, we read Pete, the moment where Peter sees Jesus for the first time. And it's incredible. Uh, he's, he's gone fishing, so I don't have the scripture. He's, he's gone fishing because he's, all the boys have gone like, the whole thing with Jesus didn't work out. Let's go back to the old jobs. I don't have an old job, so I'm kind of screwed every way you look at it. But it's like, uh, it just hit me. Um, but... Gets me from moral failure, I think. Um, so, but Peter, they all go back to their old jobs. They're all fishing and all the rest of it. And then John, in, in John's gospel, it says that John recognizes. They're like, "Who's that on the shore?" John recognizes that it's that it's Jesus. And then Peter, next slide, Peter. This is it. He's like, he just dives in. He's like, "It's Jesus." <laughs> he just does the flipping freestyle 100 metres and gets into shore and runs to Jesus. What a great example. That's why he becomes the leader of the early church because that's the posture of his heart. He wept bitterly and owned his mistakes and then he ran to Jesus. What an absolute legend. He, he's healed in that, in that discourse of feed my lambs. He's forgiven. He plunges his failures into God's grace. He plunges his failures into God's grace and he's given this fresh calling to shepherd God's people and he goes on to lead the early church. And later in his life, he once more has a choice to make about whether he denies Jesus or not. At the end of his, what's going to be his life, 
under the uh, Emperor Nero in AD 64, Peter acknowledged indeed that he knew Jesus. And according to tradition, he was crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus Christ. Something happened in Peter where this, there was just, uh, he got so transformed by the grace and the goodness and the love of God that when push came to shove, in that moment that really counted, he said, I choose Jesus. And we're talking about him to this day. And we're talking about him to this day in terms of what he's done. So I want to encourage you as we take this journey once more to Easter to, to deeply contemplate and to indeed celebrate the goodness of God revealed through that cross of Jesus Christ for he's forgiven us, he's set us free. And that this morning, I don't know what you are carrying in your conscience, what you're carrying in your life, but I would encourage you to not be a proud sinner, but to be a humble sinner and to run to Jesus. Let's stand together and pray.